Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're multitasking. But what if you could also be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. So multitask right now. Get your quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Before the game, they're talking about two football teams. When the game's over, there's only one winner. And I learned that the hard way in my first two Super Bowls. I was 0-2 and two in Super Bowls. But then things fell into place. Back-to-back Super Bowls. The 17-0 perfect season. The next year, 15-2, 32-2 years. What a football team. I think what coaching is all about is taking players and analyzing their ability. Put them in a position where they could excel within the framework of the team winning. And I hope that I've done that in my 33 years as a head coach. Oh, he did that better than anyone. Don Shula passed on Monday at the age of 90, Chris Sims. That's how we get started on this Tuesday edition of PFT Live. One of the all-time great figures, one of the stalwarts of the NFL, the all-time winningest coach, back-to-back Super Bowl titles, turned around a Miami Dolphins team, and that implies there was ever a right direction from the Miami Dolphins. They were never anything until he arrived in 1969 and just in his third season had them in the Super Bowl. That's an amazing kind of turnaround. That's an amazing turnaround by today's standards. Back then, it took at least five years to get a team out of the weeds. Just amazing what Don Shula accomplished, both with the Colts and then with the Dolphins. And a sad day for the National Football League with the passing of one of the true all-time, one-of-a-kind greats. Yeah, uh, it really is a, a sad day for anybody who loves football because Don Shula's the hierarchy. I mean, the, the pantheon of all-time great coaches, he's, he's in that conversation. We know Belichick, Lombardi, Landry, Noel, Walsh, Shula. Of course. And Shula, you know, he's right up there with the best of them. But, you know, the career as far as with the Baltimore Colts, how special that run was, some of the great players he coached over the year, over the years. I mean, the fact that he coached Johnny Unitas and Dan Marino, 
uh, and they were there was a large gap in between their careers just tells you the sustained greatness he had as a coach, the vision, the ability to change with the times, Mike, like we've seen with so many other good coaches. So uh, it is a sad day. Icon and, uh, you know, just one of those guys, Mike, I'll, I'll never forget just that tan with those sunglasses on the sideline and a teal blue sweater. Uh, I'll always picture him looking like that, roaming the sidelines. The team issued a statement following his passing on Monday. Don Shula was the patriarch of the Miami Dolphins for 50 years. He brought the winning edge to our franchise and put the Dolphins in the city of Miami in the national sports scene. Our deepest thoughts and prayers go out to Marianne, his spouse, along with his children, Dave, Donna, Sharon, and, and Mike. And, you know, when I think of Don Shula, and he coached against George Hallis, that's how long he was in the NFL, from George Hallis all the way to Bill Belichick. Don Shula is as integral to the Dolphins as George Hallis was to the Bears. Now, George Hallis owned the Bears, but you know they'll surely wear the initials DFS for Donald Francis Shula this year in Miami. But I almost feel like Shula is big enough to the Dolphins that it should be perpetual like the GSH that we have seen on the sleeves of the Bears for the past 35-plus years, Chris. Sure. Yeah, you know, Mike, that, it's a good point, and I agree with you. You know, I, I think this is the, the type of person that just exemplifies the great history of the NFL. And, you know, further to your point with the Miami Dolphins, I mean, you know, yes, it's, it's synonymous with Don Shula. When I think Miami Dolphins, that's the first guy I think of. I think of those 70s teams and Larry Zonka being undefeated. Um, so, he, he, you know, the fact that he went from the Baltimore Colts where – you know, they were viewed as the best team in football, the best team in the NFL, won a championship there, of course, had that crush, crushing Super Bowl loss and Super Bowl three to the Jets. But then to just go to Miami, like you said earlier, and almost instantaneously make them a power within the NFL, uh, that was remarkable. I mean, to go to three straight Super Bowls in the early 70s and be on the, you know, the undefeated 72 team you know, sandwiched in between the three Super Bowl appearances and winning Super Bowl two and, you know, the, the second and third appearance there. Yeah, I, I'm with you, Mike. I mean, that's you should have his initials on the jersey, maybe a decal on on their helmet forever. He, he is the Miami Dolphins. And I misspoke earlier, and I'm going to blame it on the fact that the season happens in one year and the Super Bowl happens in the next year. But the bottom line is this. It was his second season with the Dolphins that he took them to the Super Bowl, not, not third. Right. In season two with the Miami Dolphins, they went to the Super Bowl, lost to the Cowboys, and then became a team that lost the Super Bowl, and then that sparked the 17-0 season. And how many years went by before another team was able to lose the Super Bowl and turn around and win it the next year? It was the Patriots, after losing Super Bowl 52, winning Super Bowl 53, that's how long it was. That's how hard it is to do what he did like it was nothing, right? He laid the foundation right. for greatness in Miami immediately, took them to a Super Bowl. Yeah, okay, I lost again because, look, the one footnote on his career is he was the coach of the Colts when they lost to the Jets in Super Bowl three. I think he more than made up for that. But to, to go 0-2 in the Super Bowl initially, as he said in his Hall of Fame speech, it's very easy for that to perpetuate and to get out of right. and to not get out of that, that rut. 
and to turn it around the way they did with true perfection. One of the things Larry Zonka said yesterday to reporters about Don Shula, Zonka resented Shula's ways more often than not until he saw what Shula's ways did in 1972. And when you go undefeated and win the Super Bowl, adhering to very focused, determined, high expectations from your coach, that gets the guys to buy in. And Zonka bought in at that point. He understood. He got it. He realized that there was a method to the madness of the coach who drove and drove and pushed and, and tried to get the absolute most out of his players. I mean, that's what any good coach does, and Shula did it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, when you're a player, you forget sometimes, and you, you, t- you take it personal. You know, but then it's one of those things, once you step back or somebody older and wiser explains it to you, or maybe your career is over, you realize, man, that guy was just, he was pushing all my buttons to make me the best I could possibly be. I mean, Don Shula certainly had that effect. The fact that, you know, went to Super Bowls in three different decades, and, you know, like we've already mentioned, the quick turnaround from the Colts to the Miami Dolphins, and the Dolphins being so relevant in the 70s, and then really to start the 80s, extremely relevant once again. You know, go to the Super Bowl in 1982, the strike shortened season and lose to the Redskins. You know, oh, okay, oh, yep, hey, we need a new quarterback. Oh, hey, Dan Marino's here. I can change with the times. We'll be the biggest, best throwing football team in all of the, all of the NFL. You know, the 70s, he wins with smash mouth running football. The 80s, all of a sudden, it's Dan Marino in the high-flying show. And then, you know, was also competitive in the early 90s, you know, before he finally retired and got out. So just a, an amazing long stretch of a career. And to be that relevant that long and be able to change your style of plays and be able to adjust to the players over the years and how they change, because we know they change decade, decade to decade. I think it just speaks to how smart he was, the vision he had on the football field. And most importantly, the person he was and the people skills he had to be able to adjust to all these people all, you know, all through the years. Well, one name of a former Don Shula great quarterback that came up a lot in January was Bob Greasy because that's how the 49ers were winning playoff games with the quarterback doing right. the bare minimum, hardly throwing the ball at all. And to go from that in the early 70s, to Dan Marino in the mid-80s, that epitomizes the idea that you take what you have and you make it work with what you have. When you have, and, and the rules influence that as well, obviously, but when you have a gunslinger like Dan Marino, when you've got Mark Clayton and Mark Duper on the outside, that's what you cater to. When you've got Larry Zonka, Jim Kick, and Mercury Morris and you can just run the ball down the throats of any defense that you face, then that's what you focus on. That's what coaching is. Whatever your team is, you take those guys and you make it work. And Marino told a story yesterday that he never met Don Shula before he was drafted. I don't think he even spoke to him before Shula called and picked him because Marino had that free fall in 1983. And the Dolphins the one team that realized we may have something here with this kid. Let's take this kid from Pittsburgh and bring him to Miami. And I guess some parallels because Don Shula was an Ohio guy. He wasn't a Florida guy. He had, he had nothing to do with Florida until he became the Dolphins coach in 1970. So, you know, there was that kinship right out of the gates and it worked right out of the gates. And Shula knew, hey, I, I'm going to have 
passing numbers I've never had before because I have a guy like I've never had before, except for John Unitas. But that was a different time, different place, different era. But still, to, to get the most out of it, that's what Unitas would have been in the 80s. That's what Marino was right. in the 80s. But that's what Bob Greasy was never going to be able to be in the 70s. Yeah, that, that's, you know, yes. You know, and of course, you know, you got Johnny Unitas a little bit towards the end of his career, but it, it does. It just, it's, it's amazing when you think about the 70s Dolphins and, you know, I'm the kind of kid and, and still to this day that goes back and watches Super Bowl memories and old Super Bowl games and, you know, season long stories about the 72, 73 Dolphins or whatever it may be. You know, it just the fact that he ran, won in the 70s with run game defense. And then in the 80s, you know, to stay relevant like they did and, of course, win the AFC East and be in the AFC playoffs a whole lot, had some great battles with the, uh, the Buffalo Bills towards the end of the 80s decade and all that, you know, just to change your, your, your genre around, Mike, I think, again, it just speaks to all the great things uh, Don Shula was as a person and a coach because you're right. You know, he just took whatever, oh, these are the ingredients. Okay, we're going to make it happen and work. And you know, they were still very competitive and a pain in the butt. Uh, and, and amazing, too, when you really think about the 80s, because all I think about is Dan Marino and the offense and some of those Super Bowl teams they went to. I'm not even sure I can, like, right now, I'll choke. I can't remember some of the defensive players on those teams because I don't think they were great defenses or any household names at that point that I could sit here and say, oh, yeah, man, he had that defense to line, you know, lay back with in case Marino wasn't on fire. No, it was all about the offense and Marino out shooting, you know, out shooting out people. <laughs> out shoot out. Back, out, sh out shoot out people. But I think the defense back in those days was the killer bees. The I, killer I bees in the early eighties. We'll be right. chiming in on Twitter. It was the killer bees defense. Right. Cause so many right. of the players on that defense had a last name that started with B. Sometimes Hilarious. the nickname is really that simple. We got a lot of bow campers and whatnot. And here, uh, all right, it's the killer bees. So uh, th it was just something. And see, for me, I discovered football right at the time that the Dolphins were going 17-0. and For me, the moment that I understood that the NFL was a big deal was the Immaculate Reception game, December 20, 1972. I've told that story before about how the game was blacked out in the town I grew up in because it was 60 miles from Pittsburgh. And back in those days, the game was blacked out within 75 miles, even if it was sold out, and it was. So we picked up a signal from outside the bubble. We were the only house in the neighborhood that had it. The house was full of people. Everybody went nuts when Franco Harris made the catch. The next week, the Steelers lost to the Dolphins in the AFC Championship game because that was the year the Dolphins went 17-0. and The Dolphins were the team that year. And Chris, back in those days, you didn't earn home field advantage in the postseason. It was a rotation. The Steelers actually hosted the Dolphins in the AFC Championship game. One of the most unfair outcomes you can imagine because the Dolphins were undefeated and they had to go to Pittsburgh in January to play the uh, – or late December. That's how the schedule worked at the time. But they had to go to Pittsburgh in late December to play the Steelers, but won that game and then two weeks later beat Washington in Super Bowl Seven. But that the, the Dolphins just dominated that. I mean, it went from the Dolphins – to the Steelers and the Cowboys and the Raiders. Those were the four teams that ran rough shot, rough shot, rough shot over the NFL in the early 70s. And one of the reasons why Pete Rozelle hated it. Pete Rozelle wanted parity. Today's NFL, although you could argue, especially with the Patriots, today's NFL is a lot like the NFL in the 70s. But today's NFL was born of the frustration that people who ran the sport felt because it was always the same teams 
that were in the mix for a championship. And there were so many other teams out there that were just like, well, what are we doing here? Well, we can't compete with these teams. Yeah, well, uh, yes. Uh, you know, I, those Dolphins teams, you know, first off, the immaculate reception thing, I think that's amazing because so many people don't realize that. That, you know, everyone I think thinks the Steelers made that catch and went on to win the Super Bowl. Uh, it is a cool tidbit to know that the Dolphins shattered that dream just a week later. But, you know, with, with Don Shula and, you know, all the great coaches and the teams he had to deal with in the early 70s, too, when you just think about the Cowboys, the Steelers, the Raiders, the AFC was, of course, really competitive at that time. Uh, I, I just uh, I'm amazed about the longevity, the consistency, you know, and Mike, I mean, where do you, where do you put him in the all time great coaches? You know, where is he? Like, I, I understand he's at the very, very top. We're talking cream of the crop conversation here. But when you think like Hallis, Lombardi, you know, Shula, Landry, Noel, I mean, and Belichick, I mean, it's 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 really that that short with Bill Walsh maybe thrown in there, too. Uh, I, I don't know if there's any other names that come out, you know, as far as to me, as far as the cream of the crop, greatest head coaches we've ever seen in the sport. There's probably a few I'm missing there, but he's certainly in that conversation with, with the Hallis and Lombardis and Belichicks. The biggest difference, and I would boil it down to Shula and Belichick when you talk about longevity, when you talk about victory. Shula's yeah. still the all-time winningest right. coach at 328, although Belichick, should catch that number within the next few years if he continues to coach. There was a time where Belichick said he wouldn't coach past 70. Well, when you're staring 70 in the face, you have a different attitude, I think, about about things you previously said about how long you planned to coach. But even if Belichick catches him, I mean, Shula, to have 33 years, Chris, and only have two losing seasons, Belichick can't say that, right? Um, no. Uh, and, and, and maybe he'll get to 33 years, but we'd have to go back and look. I mean, he had losing seasons with the Browns. He had a losing season to start his career with the Patriots. The years that they haven't made the playoffs, I think in 2002 they were 8-8. Eight and eight. And then right. in 2008 they were 11-5 and, and, and somehow didn't make the playoffs because the Dolphins ended up winning the division that year. But uh, I, I think that Shula – now here's the big difference, and we got to be fair to the way football operates today. Sure. It's a hell of a lot harder to hold your team together now than it was back in the 70s. Once you got that nucleus of great players, you kept them. Although Don Shula did have guys like Larry Zonka and Mercury Morris defect to the WFL. If you even heard of the WFL, look it up on Google. Not now. Wait until after the show. The WFL was one of these alternate football leagues back in the early 70s. The first one to really give the NFL a run for its money. And it swiped Larry Zonka away from the Dolphins. Yeah, I, I had no idea. I, I did never heard that ever in my life. So, and that's uh, shocking to me, but I, yeah, that, that's a new one to me. But you're right. I mean, it was a different age then, but it doesn't matter. You know, he still built a nucleus and there is something to be said about that. There really is. I mean, yeah, to go from the Baltimore Colts who were a power in foot, you know, the NFL, what he had built there, you know, they were building a dynasty there. Won, a, won the NFL championship, right? Uh, and then, of course, I know lost Super Bowl three, but had something sustainable. You know, and, of course, the Colts went to the Super Bowl and Super Bowl five uh, against the Dallas Cowboys not long after Shula left. So, you know, it, it showed you what he built there. And then, of course, to build it basically three different times with the Miami Dolphins, uh, it, is, it is amazing to be able to do it that long 
And that is not an easy job. Being a head coach in the NFL, man, you're on call 24-7. It's a grind, and it's a lot of different characters you got to deal with. And he dealt with them as good as anybody we've ever seen. And I'll miss his tan, smiling face, that's for sure. Let me just add this little postscript for those who are wondering what in the hell the WFL was. It was a league that lasted for just a season or two, but actually managed to get Zonka, Jim Kick, and receiver Paul Warfield away from the Dolphins to play for the Toronto Northmen. If you, and Chris, if you never heard of the WFL, you never heard of the Toronto Northmen. The WFL no, did not. not last long. They, hey, look, they almost got Ken Stabler away from the Raiders. That's how competitive they were from a financial standpoint because back in those days, you didn't have free agency. The players didn't have leverage. When your contract expired with your team, you were free to sign another contract or not play. That was it. So it was a lot easier to hold a team together, except when the WFL came along and Don Shula had to deal with that, but not the kind of issues that Bill Belichick deals with when you see players leave almost every year. Still, Shula, truly one of the all-time greats, truly uh, a, a name that would be, I don't know if there's an overall NFL Mount Rushmore. We've talked about Mount Rushmores for different teams, different positions, different eras. I don't know. If you do four figures all time in the National Football League, how do you not put Shula on there with George Hallis? The other two spots would be open for debate. But but I really do mean it. I think the Dolphins do need to consider some sort of a perpetual. I agree. Honor. The Raiders the Raiders have it with Al Davis. Yep. The Bears have it with George Hallis. And even though Shula never owned the team, that's how significant he was to that franchise. And hopefully they'll give that proper consideration that it's more than just a one-year honor that, uh, that the Dolphins paid in the memory of Don Shula. All right, let's, uh, let's take a quick break. When we return, focus on the AFC North. Who has closed the gap on the Ravens, if anyone? We'll discuss that as this Tuesday edition of Pro Football Talk Live continues right after this. Baltimore Ravens ended up winning the AFC North last year and had the number one seed in the AFC until they lost at home in the divisional round of the Tennessee Titans. Has any of the other three teams managed to close the gap on the Baltimore Ravens? That is the subject uh, of this segment, Chris. And look, I, 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 I look at what the Ravens have done, and I think the real question is how much bigger have the Ravens made the gap between them and everyone else? They are not resting on their laurels, not that they ultimately were able to get a trophy last year, but they had great success, and they are not waiting for the other teams to catch them. When you look at what they've done this offseason, how they've tried to make their team better, I really do think the gap may be bigger, not I smaller. I agree between them and the other three teams. Well, I, I mean, a hundred percent, you know, I think we could sit here. And if you talk about like the teams who won the off season in the NFL this year, the Baltimore Ravens are in the conversation for some of the things they did in free agency and the draft. They, they killed the draft, you know, and free agency to be able to sign Calais Campbell, you know, get back Jimmy Smith, keep Matt Judon. That was a huge signing. You know, it was, uh, they franchised him. So, they did a lot of good things just there as far as keeping their core together in Baltimore and adding Calais Campbell. But then you look at their draft and what they did there, you know, getting a, two middle linebackers in the first three rounds, getting a difference maker in J.K. Dobbins at, at running back, another defensive tackle, another receiver 
that, you know, in Duvernay from Texas that, that Lamar Jackson could throw to. So I'm with you, Mike. I mean, I, I think Baltimore is one of the teams I would sit here and go, they had the best offseason at all of football. So I'm not sure if anybody please close the gap. If there's any team in the division that closed the gap at all, to me, it would be the Cleveland Browns. They're another team that I think, like Baltimore, killed free agency and killed the draft as well to at least improve their football team. And the Browns have yet another new head coach in Kevin Stefanski. I know that for some on this program, maybe both of us, there were questions about why Stefanski and why not Josh McDaniels instead, right. given that McDaniels would come from that Patriot way, would instill that Patriot way. But the Browns, look, they finally have gotten aligned under Paul DePodesta, and they've let him basically call the shots on the head coach and the GM. They've added some great players, signed Jack Conklin away from the Titans. He had a great year last season at right tackle, a guy who didn't have his option picked up but then had a great contract year and left Tennessee, signed tight end Austin Hooper away from the Atlanta Falcons, used the 10th overall pick on Jedrick Wills to further beef up that offensive line that you know has still not fully recovered from the retirement of Joe Thomas. And when you look at what Nick Chubb did last year, almost winning the rushing title, it was a late push from Derrick Henry of the Titans that took it away from Chubb. What Baker Mayfield did as a rookie, what maybe he could do in year three if they can just get things stabilized. Chris, your guy OBJ, had a video yesterday where he has boasted he's going to have one of his best seasons ever now that he's gotten himself healthy. We'll see. But, uh, yeah, I think of the three teams, Steelers, Browns, Bengals, the Browns, and and I, I don't know that this is good news for the Browns to, to not be off the radar screen. I feel like the more focus and attention that we put on the Browns, the harder it is for them to live up to the hype and the expectations. The hype isn't like it was last year, but I still think that maybe the team is better than it was last year. I do too. I think it's, you know, it's more well-rounded. You know, last year it was a lot of, you know, sex appeal. Oh, you know, it's, it's, oh, it's Olivier Vernon. We got him and Baker Mayfield and OBJ and Jarvis Landry. And we're going to be, you know, the greatest show on turf. And yeah, that, you know, listen, we're all excited about that. Definitely. And the fact that Kareem Hunt's there and they kept him along with Nick Chubb. But the thing I would be the most excited about is what you talked about. What they did on really the offensive line, Jack Conklin, and then to get Jedrick Wills in the top 10 of the draft. So now you have two franchise tackles to go with, you know, a pretty good interior offensive line, Mike. And let's not forget, Nick Chubb was, you know, did he lead the league in rushing last year? So they can run block a little. No, Derrick Ken Derek Henry caught Derek Henry like did. in the last week. Yeah, that's right. I forgot. Right. So, yeah. you know, there's, there's a lot to like there. And then one of the issues, you know, you looked at on their defensive side of the ball last year. We know they have some you know, athletic studs on the edge of the defense, but to sign an Adrian Claiborne and an Andrew Billings uh, and then a few guys in the secondary too, just to kind of round out that defense to help out the safety position, give them some bigger bodies, you know, make the run defense better. Yeah, I like what Cleveland did this offseason. You know, yeah, I wasn't a huge fan of the Stefanski hiring, um, but, but you know, Mike, we'll, we'll, you and I will be the first one to sit here if they start tearing it up to go look at him. He did a great job, and I'm, I'm rooting for him. It's nothing personal. Uh, it's certainly not. But I like what Cleveland's done, and I think you know they're, they're heading in the right direction. There's no doubt. The Bengals got quarterback Joe Burrow number one overall. Andy Dalton was cut last week. So they go with Burrow. They bring in receiver T. Higgins in round two. Franchise tag applied to A.J. Green. Joe Mixon still there entering the fourth year of his career and has been 
not spectacular, but I guess given the constraints of the Bengals' offense, he's been better than than average, much better than average, really. David Carr, uh, who went through uh, uh, the early stages of a career with the Texans without having much help on the offensive line, he recently expressed, you know, an opinion that hey, Joe Burrow is in for a long rookie season if they don't improve the offensive line. I think that's the real question in Cincinnati. Do they have enough protection to let Burrow do all those great things that he did at LSU, Chris? Yeah, well, you know, there, there's two things there. Let's not forget their first-round pick from Alabama. He'll be back in the lineup next year at tackle. Right? You know, he didn't get unless to play he gets last injured year. Again. Well, unless, unless he gets injured I mean, that's again. The thing. We, it, it's funny how all the guys who come back from injury, we just assume they're going to play 16 games. I'd love well, to see yeah. the stats on that. But, but, but you're, if he's healthy, if he's healthy, that'll help. Right. I mean, it's certainly going to be an upgrade to what they had in a hole still. The greatest thing about Joe Burrow, Mike, that we talked about during the draft, Burrow's amazing under pressure. That's one of the positive things about him. And you mentioned, you know, Joe Mixon. I would think there's going to be real emphasis on getting that run game going. He's a special running back. You know, that's, hey, that falls under the, the guideline of, hey, it's a team sport. And it stinks because you could be one of the best at your position in a sport. And if nobody's opening up holes for you or doing anything to help you, we don't know about it, and that's what stinks, but they do have A.J. Green back, made some you know, adjustments to their secondary. Thought they got a great defensive tackle in D.J. Reader from the Texans. Uh, I thought that was a huge pickup for their football team, but you know, I'm, the Bengals, are, they're headed in the right direction, no doubt. I mean, hey, listen, I, I'm a huge fan of Joe Burrow, and I think that T. Higgins second-round pick uh, is going to fit real nicely with his style of play, too. So they're trending upward. There's no doubt about that. It's just going to be a big year for Zach Taylor getting Joe Burrow caught up in this offense and get everything going that way. Joe Mixon quietly had 1,137 rushing yards right. last year, which actually ended up being two more yards than Dalvin Cook. Now, Cook missed a couple of games due to injury late in the season. I think one was more let's just protect in the haze in the barn on our playoff berth. But still, he had more rushing yards than Dalvin Cook with a team that was a far cry from the Minnesota Vikings. So, you know, Mixon may explode to the extent that there is a threat in the passing game that pushes that extra safety out of the box, gives Joe Mixon maybe a better running lane. But it is going to come down, Chris, to the offensive line. Can Jonah Williams be healthy? Can the rest of the offensive line do what it needs to do? And we haven't mentioned the Pittsburgh Steelers. Look. If they have Ben Roethlisberger back healthy all year long, which could be a big if given that he exited week two with a season-ending elbow injury, but they brought in Chase Claypool to beef up the receiving core. They've added Anthony McFarlane Jr. to help out with right. a, a, a multi-headed running attack that still can't quite replace Le'Veon Bell. Their defense got really good last year. You know, the Steelers could be a team that kind of quietly uh, – gives the Ravens a run for their money. And, and just we know the history in Pittsburgh. We know the Mike Tomlin coaching. We know everything about Pittsburgh. They, they are not going to just give up. They are not going to just go 6-10 no. and, and concede anything to anyone. They're going to be in the thick of things. No, exactly. I mean, yeah, we're not trying to disrespect the Pittsburgh Steelers. I mean, I think, yeah, we almost glossed them over because we just go, they're going to be good. They're going to be really competitive. They have a Super Bowl-type defense. I mean, come on. What they did last year, the, the last half of the year, the last 10 games of the year, that was amazing. I mean, they knew that they were going to have to come out and hold teams to 13, 16 points, or they couldn't win games, and they did that. So first off, them keeping Bud Dupree you know, through the franchise tag was huge for their football team. It was. But this team, in a lot of ways, like you mentioned, 
is built and ready to go. Yeah, they had a few guys in free agency. Eric Ebron at tight end. That'll be a nice uh, match with, with Ben Roethlisberger, Chase Claypool. And, you know, again, some young receivers that I think are going to open up some eyes with everybody this year uh, with Deontay Johnson and I think Washington, James Washington, he'll be a year better and all that. So I certainly am not trying to disrespect the Steelers. I don't think you are either. I think we both look at them and go, we think they're going to be a major player in the AFC playoff conversation. They got a lot of fairly high round picks at receiver in Pittsburgh. Now let's see if those guys step up. We know Juju Smith-Schuster can. We're looking to, we're going to look and see what Chase Claypool can do, but when you've got Deontay Johnson, who's yet to really get it done, James Washington yet to prove he can do it on a high right. level. We're going to learn a lot about the Steelers receivers this year. All right, let's take a break. We're going to play a game of Would You Rather when PFT Live continues right after this. It's the dog days of spring on NBCSN. You can catch the best dog shows from the past decade every night. Right here on NBCSN. Those dogs are good dogs. They look like fine dogs, but they are nothing like the dogs that we own. We, us, not you, us, our dogs. Macy, look at Macy. The picture on the left, I mean, we had just gotten her a few days earlier. She she is uh, still every bit as cute, though, now that she's fully grown. And let's see the Sims dogs. I think the over-under is two and a half now. He, ha- he seems to add another one, Toto and Bentley. <laughs> I'm still waiting for Bentley. I'm still waiting to hear the, the sad news that Bentley has eaten Toto. But uh, apparently that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> no, it hasn't happened. He's uh, his personal protector and uh and like torture person all or to- torture dog all in one you know he's constantly reminding toto he puts his big jaw right in the back of the neck of toto all the time to like let him know like i could do it i could do it if you don't if you don't play with me i, I could snap your neck so uh my poor toto he's a good boy though by the way we were very serious and very professional at the top of the hour so i couldn't make an important observation I don't know. Were you trimming the dog's fur the other day and or yesterday, and just accidentally the shears hit your head? What's going on here? Did you sneak out I, and get I've a been I've been waiting. It's about damn time you looked at me and like took recognition of what I did. I took a little baby step. You know, two things I did over the last few days. All right, I had my mom and dad over on Sunday. All right, it was the first time I had seen them in eight weeks. Taking little baby steps. They've been very careful. I've been very careful. Yesterday. Did have my uh, hair cutter come over to the house. He said it was his first house visit. He's been very strict. We wore masks and did all of that, Mike. But yes, he came here and cut my hair. I couldn't take it any longer. So um, judge judge me as you may, whatever you want to say. But I am, I'm, you know, I want to kind of further life here just a little bit with little baby steps right now. Barber comes to your house, a.k.a. can't hide money. all right uh time for a little would you rather if you were only going to play one more year in the national football league would you rather be aaron Rodgers on a team that went to the nfc championship game or tom brady on a new team but with a bunch of weapons even though that team hasn't had much success i i i feel like i want to say tom brady here i'd still rather be on in the tom brady situation you know first off there's the old phrase of like Right. If you're not getting better, you're getting worse. And I feel like the Green Bay Packers, they, that, that's kind of what they did this offseason. They kind of like, oh, we're good. We went to the NFC title game. We're going to stay the same. We're just going to bring the team back. 
Yeah, they made a few minor adjustments, but, you know, uh, listen, if you're a quarterback, how could your eyes not open up about playing with the weapons Tom Brady's going to have in Tampa Bay? They are definitively better than the weapons Aaron Rodgers has in Green Bay. It's not even close. So I'm, I'm Brady all the way here. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I, I think that Aaron Rodgers would love to switch spots with Tom Brady right now if he <laughs> yeah, could. That, right? That's the ultimate litmus test here. I mean, why ask us? Aaron Rodgers, apply a little truth serum and or liberal amounts of scotch, post-game scotch. We know how he likes that. Eventually, he'd be saying, yeah, I'd love to go to Tampa Bay and be with Bruce Arians and Mike Evans and all the weapons that they have and the defense they seem to be hatching and a team that feels like the arrow is going up not at best flat in Green Bay. And like you said, if you ain't getting better, you're getting worse. All right, if you were a backup quarterback, would you rather be Jalen Hurts in Philadelphia behind the oft-injured Carson Wentz or Jordan Love in Green Bay behind the oft-prickly Aaron Rodgers? Well, this is a good question. I mean, it really is. You know, Jalen Hurts, you know, he's going to get to play this year in some sort of fashion, some sort of role on that Philadelphia Eagles offense. But I think ultimately, if we're talking about playing backup quarterback, I'd rather be Jordan Love. I'd rather be in his situation. You know, one, I don't expect, we've already heard Aaron Rodgers has reached out to Jordan Love. I don't think Aaron Rodgers is going to be mean to Jordan Love in any way, shape, or form. You know, he's not going to blame him for, you know, the Packers stupidity in the draft. I don't think he'll be that type of person. So I'd rather be Jordan Love, one, because you get to, learn behind a guy like Aaron Rodgers, sit back and just observe how he plays the game. And also, I just feel like I'd rather be Jordan Love because, you know, they're, they're, they put themselves into the corner now. I mean, they've, this is Aaron Rodgers' replacement. They've, they're invested in Jordan Love. They're going to try to make it work uh, by any shape or any way they can find possible. You know, this is the heir apparent. And so he's sitting there and probably won't play much the first year or two. But either way, he's the guy that's going to be taking the reins over. Jalen Hurts, we don't know that yet. You know, Jalen Hurts is a offensive improvement. He is. I don't know if he's necessarily a quarterback of the future for the Eagles. Well, and and the thing about Jordan Love, I mean, surely the Packers can't get lucky enough to go from Brett Favre to Aaron Rodgers to Jordan Love. If they that pull be, that yeah. off. Right. right. It's rare enough to go from one franchise quarterback in an unbroken chain to the next one. I mean, it was Joe Montana, Steve Young, right? That's it. That's the list. Man Manning luck. Manning luck, maybe you could say but a little it bit. Was a, it was yeah. not unbroken right. because, because there was that donut hole year that, that, they, that they stunk enough to get in position to get luck because Peyton Manning was injured. But I'm talking about a continuous or an right. overlap between – these guys, uh, we, we saw it with Young and Montana. We saw it with Favre and Rodgers. If we see Favre, Rodgers, Love, that will be something. Uh, I think I'd rather be Jalen Hurts this year, though, because Jordan Love's just not going to play. Jalen Hurts is going to get a chance to develop, and if he plays well, he'll end up being a starting quarterback somewhere else at some point. All right, one more real quick. If you're Jalen Rieger, the first-round pick of the Philadelphia Eagles, would you rather have the pressure of being picked where you were, or would you have rather gone later in the draft but with less pressure to perform right away. I'll take, you know, option number one, have the pressure of being picked where you were. I mean, first off, you're a first-round pick. That's a very special thing. It's an honor to be picked in the first round by an NFL oh, football team, honor. right? It's an honor. <laughs> but it is. Yes. It's something you can, you can have on your resume for the rest of your life to say, you know, wow, I'm a first-round pick. It's more money. Yes, there's more pressure, but it also means they're going to – 
you know, have a bigger section of the playbook to get you the football too. So I'd rather have that pressure of being the high pick than, than the later round guy. But we just saw yesterday when they finalized the fifth-year options for the first-round picks in the 2017 draft, it is a 50-50 proposition as to whether or not a guy is going to pan out. And it is extra pressure. And I also think, and this is the Michael Thomas factor, there's something that happens to a guy who goes lower than he wanted to go in the draft, and he gets a stick in a place where sticks don't normally go, and it motivates him, and it drives him, and that's what happened. Now, Michael Thomas may have been the same way if he had been a first-round pick, but it's a hell of a lot easier to get yourself lathered up all the time when you constantly are walking around with that list in your brain of all the guys who were drafted before you that you know you're better than. Justin Jefferson, who was still a first-round pick in Minnesota, has that edge to him just because there were three or four guys that went before him. So I think there's value in sliding to round two uh, because it does light more of a fire potentially. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I think for me it was resolved when I had the conversation with Joe Burrow a couple of weeks ago and I said to him, hey, you know, is there a part of you that would rather not be entering the NFL as the first pick in the draft with all the expectations, with all the pressure? Wouldn't you rather kind of be developing quietly? He said, no, no, no. This is what you want. This is what I want. And and I think the guys who truly do rise to the occasion, they're the ones who it doesn't matter if they're pick one or pick right. 256. They are going to come to town and they are going to be ready to play at the highest possible level. And they are not going to fold simply because they have higher expectations than they otherwise would. All right, let's take a break. Um, coming up, you're going to hear about another famous NFL figure, although Chris Sims' overall fame is left to be debated still. Who had no idea who Darth Vader is? Plus, are the Jets shopping safety Marcus May? More PFT Live right after this. All right, there was a report from the New York Daily News on Monday that the Jets have been and look, it, the specific wording, I guess, here is very important because it's one thing to shop a player. It's another thing to take phone calls. The report was that the Jets have been fielding calls and apparently not hanging up the phone immediately when people call about safety Marcus May. I'm told that none of that is going on. They're not talking to anybody about trading Marcus May. It could be that there's somebody out there that just wants to get something started to try to shake Marcus May free from the New York Jets, especially now that they drafted Ashton Davis in round three. People assume Ashton Davis is the replacement for Marcus May. I mean, you've got Jamal Adams there, too, and who the hell knows what's going to happen with him over the long haul. He seems from time to time, based on his social media, like a guy who's disgruntled and wants out. He seems like a guy who's a little bit hard for the Jets to handle, a little bit overly sensitive about the things said or not said about him. But... For now, it appears the Jets are standing pat with both guys, Chris, but uh, the idea that they have had real meaningful discussions with another team or teams about trading Marcus May, my understanding is that hasn't happened and they don't intend for that to happen. Yeah, well, I mean, first off, with Jamal Adams, I mean, you're right. It hasn't been like the smoothest, but from what we see on the field, I mean, it's the best safety in football. So. The Jets would be crazy, in my opinion, to trade him unless they just got some trade offer that was absolutely, oh, my gosh, this is unbelievable. We can't turn this down. It's going to change our team for the next four or five years. He's the best player on the team. And so the, 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 they, I would be shocked if they let him go. Now, Marcus May, it's the first thing I thought of. When they drafted Ashton Davis, 
a guy that was in my top five safeties in the NFL draft, I thought, ooh, man, what will that mean for Marcus May? But, you know, other than Ashton Davis, uh, Marcus May, and, and, and Jamal Adams, there's not a really a lot of proven commodities on the Jets roster at the safety position. You know, got a few journeymen and a few young guys who their help, you know, maybe can contribute. But this day and age in the NFL, Mike, I mean, you know this. You need three safeties. You're going to play a lot of defensive sets where three safeties will be on the field. One of them will be down there at the linebacker position as a smaller type linebacker, and you could have two safeties deep. There's a lot of teams that play that. Uh, so, I, I, you know, I would imagine that they stand pat with Marcus May is, is my final conclusion there with that long answer. Sorry. Routinely referred to as the big nickel package when you do have three safeties on the field and one replacing a linebacker. We'll see what happens with the Jets, though, and their three safeties. Will any of them get moved? My understanding is none will. We'll see how it plays out. Let's take a break. Uh, the NFL has canceled, as expected, all international games. We'll discuss that and also plans for the schedule release when PFT Live continues right after this. Not a surprise from the NFL, the decision to pull the plug on five international games that were due to be played this year, four in London, one in Mexico City. Look, it, 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 it's, it, it's a no-brainer given the pandemic. Too many moving parts. The logistics too complicated. The health issues still too undecided at this point. So the Jaguars get their two games back in Jacksonville. Other teams like the Dolphins, the Falcons, the Cardinals that were going to host international games, they're not going to be. It, it, it makes a ton of sense, Chris. The real question is, can the NFL pull off the 256-game schedule that will be announced on Thursday night? Well, that, that, that is the big thing. You're right. I, I mean, I question that. I, I do feel better and better as each week goes by that we're going to have some semblance of NFL football this year. But, yeah, I don't know about how many games that'll be. And, you know, with the London and, and national, you know, the uh, worldwide games, hey, I'm, I'm sad to see the London games not, you know, be played there this year. And I, first off, I feel like it's really, you know, garner, you know, gained some momentum the last few years. And, of course, we see it here directly with this show and, you know, the, the Sky Sports and, you know, the U.K. tuning in to watch uh, us two idiots talk about NFL football all day long. So there obviously is excitement there. And I love – the 9.30 a.m. Eastern games on a Sunday. It was just great to be able to wake up and watch those and start your day, but we won't have that this year. Yeah, and look, there has been a ton of momentum with the International Series, specifically in London. We feel bad for our friends over there who enjoy this program on Sky Sports, but we're not going anywhere. You'll still have us all year long unless they pull the plug on us, which I guess is entirely possible. We have another hour of PFT Live coming at you right after this. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.